Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. And we're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. Just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Hope Church, one of the things that I'm most excited about with this summer preaching series is getting to introduce you to some of my friends who have a passion to see the kingdom of God expanded in the Western United States. This first week, you're gonna to get to hear from D.A. Horton. Had the opportunity a few years ago to meet D.A. and immediately fell in love with his passion for the gospel and his passion to see churches planted. He's right now in the middle of relocating his family and his team to Los Angeles, California, being sent out of Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, where Pastor J.D. Greer, who you've heard before, is the senior pastor. They're his sending church. We at Hope Church are gonna come alongside DA in the planting of Reach Fellowship there in Los Angeles, California. We're gonna partner with them in seeing the gospel penetrate that city. DA, it is an honor to have you preach the Word of God here at Hope. We're so blessed that you would give us some time to come and be here today. Hope Church family, would you give a warm welcome to DA Horton? What's up, y'all? I appreciate that. Good morning. It's a blessing to be with you. Um, if you're physically able, would you stand with me for the reading of the Word this morning, please, and thank you. I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. Uh, I want to read this passage of scripture that I want to offer a brief prayer, and then we're going to dig into this text. The word of God says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let me pray. Father, as we humbly approach the passage this morning, Lord, I understand everyone is coming in here with different situations and circumstances. And Father, I pray that you would allow me to be nothing more than a microphone to amplify your word to the hearer this day. And Father God, as we think through the realities of the tension going on in Turkey, Lord God, around our nation, the officers that were shot dead in Baton Rouge this morning, we offer our condolences, our griefs. We offer our frustrations, our angst at the racial tensions in our nation today. And I pray that you would allow us to be mobilized, Lord God, to communicate from your word that could be salve for hurting hearts, Lord, in our city, in our nation, in our world. As the chaos increases, I pray that we would cling to Christ more closely. And I pray this morning that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. This morning I've titled the sermon, Called to Commit. Often as believers in Jesus Christ, I think we wrestle with two questions. One, am I called to mission? And two, where am I called? And the answer to both is yes. Am I called? Yeah, you called. Every Christian is called. Where? Yes. 
Wherever God wants you, that's where you go. But that's, that's, that's a struggle, that's a tension. And I think looking at the reality of Abraham's life will help us work through that tension to look at a model. A model is not always something that looks perfect. When I say model, don't think of like what you see on the magazines or airbrush people on billboards. I'm talking about real scars, real jacked up people like us that God still somehow uses in his sovereignty to promote the reality of the gospel and to see the lostness around us reduced in disciples from every ethnicity made. That's the reality of our calling. What I love about Jesus Christ is before he dipped back to heaven, he gave every single Christian the same job description. Go into all the world and make disciples of every ethnicity. The Greek word ethne is where we get the English word ethnicity, often it's translated nations. So that's what I love about Hope Church is I see a visible reality of the Great Commission being fulfilled. But the reality of that is that it's made up of every Christian doing our part to share the gospel and to put our yes on the table and our blank check for God to fill that joint out. That's the reality of what he's called us to do. And so by looking at Abraham's life, here's the main point I want us to wrestle with this morning. Abraham's story causes us to wrestle with the question, do I love the promise or the promise or more? Do I love the promise or the promise or more? Because God has not just given us a calling, he's given us a promise, a promise of him remaining with us. Now, so often this passage of Abraham that I just read is manipulated, it's drugged through the mud, it's redefined so that people always think that it equals material wealth that God is guaranteeing every Christian. That's not a reality. Because there are believers in different countries, there are believers in this very county, in this very city, who arguably may love God more than we do, but they don't have a one-hundredth of the amount of things that we may have. So we understand that our relationship with God is not based on financial wherewithal. It's the reality of obedience to the beauty of the gospel. And so this morning, I want us to look at, man, do I love you, God, for my comfort, or do I really love Christ? And so the first point that I want to work through is through the passage that I read. It's the calling of Abraham, God's calling of Abraham. And the call of God actually confronts our comfort. That's the first thing I want you to understand about God's call. It confronts our comfort every single time. Now it says this, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Now this word go in the Hebrew is written in what we call the active voice, which means the subject that's receiving the call, they have to make the willful decision to obey and get up and go. It's not passive. It's not, okay, I will go, but you literally got to pick me up and put me somewhere else. Nah, God says, here's what I want you to do. And it's also in the imperative. The imperative means God's not suggesting to Abraham, hey, bro, when you feel cool, right, like maybe next Thursday or when you get your 401k settled and you start getting your monthly SSI checks, like then I want you to dip. Nah, that's not it. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. He is saying, go, leave. Now let's look at the implications of what God is calling him to do. Abraham was in a season of life where he wasn't trying to go nowhere. This brother was 75 years old. This is not when you're like, you know what, I think I'm going to go back to school. Hey, that's what's up, but maybe you could have thought through that 50 years ago, bro. Like right now in this season of life, maybe if you're going to go, it's going to be short term. Pack up the RV, maybe dip to Salt Lake City, come through to L.A., you know, for a weekend, a couple weeks. Be a snowbird. Whatever you got to do, do that, but come back. It's not a permanent leaving. But God is saying, nah, bro, I want you to pick up everything and dip. You got to go. But let's look at this. He calls him away from your country, your kindred, 
and your father's house. There's some serious implications that we can easily read over if we don't take a look at this. Your country, that's the familiarity of your land. If most of this society was an agrarian society, which means that they made their living off the land, to go to foreign soil literally is a task and a half. I never been to that soil. How long is it going to take to plant produce? When's the rain season? Like, where are you calling me? I ain't never been to where you're calling me to go. How do I know these things? How am I going to survive? So it's not just a dip away from your family and your land. It's like, yo, but there's implications that rock the sustenance of how I provide for my family involved, God. Don't you know that? Of course the Lord knows that. But then he says, all right, we're going to double down now, bro. I want you to leave your kindred. Leave your kindred which is all of your familial structures, which leads to the emotional comfort that we have that is cool to know that mama and daddy or my auntie and my uncle or my cousin and my siblings, like they ain't nothing but a phone call away or they ain't nothing but a few blocks away or 15 minutes on the freeway away. There's comfort in knowing that they're close even though we ain't in each other's face every day. So there's that reality of, but my family is here, Lord. So you're calling me away from my land that I make my living and earn so that I can provide for my family. Now you're calling me away from my family structure. But then God says, yeah, but uh, there's one more detail. I need you to walk away from your father's house. Now back then, what this means is that Abraham is surrendering all of his socioeconomic vitality. He is saying, everything that my father gave to me upon his death, I am to walk away from all of this? And God's like, I didn't stutter. Yeah, that's what I said. Them three things is what I'm calling you away from. You see, in Abram's day, people remained in the land of their ancestors. Only conquered people were displaced and roamed as vagabonds. So now culturally, there's implications. What is he going to look like? He's going to look like... Somebody who's homeless. He's going to look like somebody that we drive by when they are asking for money on the on-ramp to the freeway. That's what he's going to look like. So he's going from all this success. He's going from a, a plush crib, a great job, an inheritance, and God is saying, leave it all and go to where I'm going to call you that you ain't ever been before. You're going to give the appearance like you're poor, you're destitute, and you're broken. That's exactly where I want you. That's not an appealing calling, y'all. Nah, for real. Like, like if God were to tell me that, I'm like, man, you tripping. That ain't the Lord. Like, that ain't, nah, that ain't God. That's me trying to be legalistic with my Christianity and trying to prove myself to people looking at me. Oh, I gave up this for the cause, and, and I gave up that for the cause, and, and I'm dragging my family. Also, people could say, man, man, yeah, man, to God be the glory, man. Yeah, and then we go out to eat, right? <laughs> like, seriously, man. Like, when I hear people say that, I'm like, dang, that's, that's deep, man. I don't know if I can do that. Because I'm going to keep it 300. Like, I wrestle with that. When people preach messages like this, everyone is called, give up everything. I'm like, yeah, bro, but we got bills, dog. I got student loans. What about my kids? So sometimes, even for the Christian, the word stewardship is a scapegoat from the call. Sometimes stewardship is, yeah, but Lord, okay, okay, look, I see what you're saying, but let me give you a counteroffer, but what about stewardship, God? Maybe I'm just talking about myself. So, like, I'm thinking through that. So God's calling confronted Abram, confronted his comfort head on. This is, what he, this is what he literally told Abram to do. Throw your resume away, bro. Don't go on Indeed. Don't go on Monster.com. Throw your resume for success away. 
There is nothing you can contribute to the call that I am giving to you. You have to fully be surrendered to me. Man, then this is what he says about the promise. And I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of all the earth, you shall be blessed. So God says, look, bro, I'm calling you, but I got this promise. So now it's like, oh, okay, God, so you got me. So, like, you're going to take care of us financially, and me and my wife, I mean, we kind of getting up there. No shade, babe, but, like, we getting up there in age. But it's like, yo, you're you going to make my name great. That means you're going to give us kids. I don't know how you're going to do it, but, all right, I can dig the promise. Like, I'm sitting here dialoguing with God, hearing his voice, so I know you exist. So, I'm going to follow you because you say you got me. All right, I can run with that, Lord. But then there's even that tension Am I only going because you're going to hook me up? Am I only going because you're going to give me these things? Or do I really trust you? So obviously there's an element of trust. Abram puts himself in a position where he puts his yes on the table. All right, God, you've called me. Here is my yes. And I give you my blank check of my life, my family. I'm walking away from everything, and I'm asking you to fill this check out. Abram put himself in a position of understanding that he had no resources to work or earn the promise of God. Now, what I love about Christ is that that's the reality of our resume when it comes to salvation. There is nothing we have on our resume to work or earn for a right standing with God. The gospel tells us we're in a similar position. We can't work for salvation. It's not through our charitable giving. It's not through positive thoughts. It's not through church, mosque, synagogue, or temple attendance. It's not through protesting. It's not through scholarship and education. You can have more degrees than a thermometer, and you still have not alleviated any of your sin debt that God holds against us. So you take all your resume for success and throw it in the trash because although it could get you financial wherewithal, it could get you connections in the political sphere, it could advance you in your field of influence of your career, it will not do anything to alleviate the sins that you have committed before God. The beauty of the gospel is that it is Jesus's work alone that must be put to our account to put us in a right standing with God. And when we embrace the reality of the gospel and put our trust in Jesus, we throw our hands up and say, I'm taking the plea bargain, God, that says, I admit I'm a sinner. I can't save myself through anything that I could ever do. I am fully dependent on the finished work of Jesus. We are saved. And when we are saved, we are called. There is no divorcing of the two. When we embrace Christ, we embrace the call, the call of God on our life to put our yes on the table and surrender our blank check. So the reality, the two elements that I think we in America wrestle with, Two things that a homie by the name of Francis Schaeffer said years ago was this, personal peace and affluence. Personal peace and affluence, I think, are the two largest hurdles that American Christians wrestle with in surrendering our blank check and our yes on the table to God. Let me tell you what I mean by personal peace. Personal peace is let me live my life and don't tell me anything is right or wrong that I'm doing. If I don't want to go to church, get off my back. I have my personal relationship with God, all right? I don't want to give to mission or, you know what, I'll do the bare minimum and I'll pray for them. 
but I don't want to be called to do anything on mission. Again, you're divorcing and creating a false dichotomy between the calling and the mission. It's both and, not either or. And so personal peace says, let me live my life. Let me do me, man. Like, let me have what I want. I ain't going to hurt nobody. You know what's amazing about that philosophy of personal peace is that that's the core root in the doctrine of Satanism. Do what thou wilt. Thou shalt be the whole of the law. In the 60s, it was do your thing, do what you want to do. Now we just translate it, I'm going to do me. You do you, and I'm going to do me. That's the core essence of Satanism. That's why it's an attack against the reality of our calling and the mission that God has commissioned us to live on. So when God says, I want you to go or I want you to do this, I want you to share the gospel with that person, I'm like, yo, God, get off my back, bruh. Let me live what we're saying is. My personal peace in this moment is more valuable to me than that lost soul. But it's not just personal peace. It's also affluence. We have to understand what in my life or who is my supplier of peace and affluence. Is it my career? Is it my house? Is it my family? My relationship? My scholarship? What is supplying me my peace? And the reason I know I'm in peace is because I have this in my life. If that were to be removed and I have no peace, then I was just exposed to being idolater because Christ is still in my life as a believer, but yet he's in constant competition with whatever is ruling on my heart right now. That's what prevents Christians from living on mission. Remember, mission is not just going overseas. Sometimes it's going across the street. Mission is sharing the gospel with our non-believing spouse and living out the implications day in and day out. I mean, this is what 1 Peter 3 talks about. Mission is sharing the gospel with our non-believing parents, our siblings, our children. Nobody is born a Christian. Everybody is born spiritually dead and separated from God. Psalm 51.5 declares prophetically from David that while he was in his mother's womb, sin was already inside of him. Genetically, every single one of us has been mutated by sin. We inherited from our first common father, Adam, who disobeyed God in the garden. Romans 5.12 literally tells us, through one man, sin and death entered. And the reality of the curse is upon every single one of us today. Psalm 58.3 tells us, from the womb, the wicked come forth speaking lies, which means every single one of our native language is not English, Spanish, Cantonese, or Korean. It is lying. Nobody had to teach you how to be a sinner. There's a rapper a few years ago, J. Cole, came out with an album, Natural Born Sinner. The reality is that God's been on that. He's been telling humanity, all oh, y'all natural born sinners. Ephesians chapter 2, 1, 2, and 3 clearly tells us that we are spiritually dead under the dominating power of Satan and the sons of disobedience of the worldly system. So we are not born Christian. We're born dead, separated as a human race from a holy and righteous God. That darkness sets up the reality, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ who saw our condition and he left the comforts of the crib of heaven and he put flesh on like we put clothes on and he lived in perfect obedience to full 613 Old Testament commands that not a single one of us could ever obey perfectly. And with the law of God, if you break one, you break them all. And he offered his perfect life as a substitutionary death on behalf of a human race who could not pay our own way out of debt. As I look at my life in personal peace and affluence, and we planted a church in Kansas City. The church was vibrant. It was thriving. It was growing. Everything was going well. We just purchased a crib. To God be the glory. And then God called us to Atlanta, Georgia. 
And I was like, man, you tripping, Lord. This ain't you. Because Atlanta was the one city I said, man, I'll live anywhere. I'll move anywhere. I won't move to Atlanta. I just didn't like Atlanta back then. And it was crazy because, man, I had so much shade against Atlanta. I could never identify why. I just didn't like Atlanta. The few times I was there, just had some crazy situations happen. And I was like, Lord, nah, man, you tripping. Maybe it's L.A. Maybe you got the letters mixed up or something, Lord. <laughs> like Atlanta, Los Angeles. I was trying to phonetically make that thing work. And I'm like, somehow you missed it, Lord. I think it's L.A. I ain't trying to go to the south in the humidity and all that. Ain't nobody trying to do that. I want to go to the west with the palm trees and chill in the cut, man, with the ocean breeze. That's where we at, Lord. And God confirmed it. He confirmed it. It was challenging. It was heartbreaking. We were leaving our completely holistic family structures, both of our parents, all of our siblings, everybody from my wife and my side of the family lives in Kansas City. That's where we were born and raised at. That's where the Lord saved us. That's where we planted a church. We bought a crib because we're going to stay there for the rest of our lives. I thought I was sovereign over my life. Man, was I wrong. Because when I embraced Christ the Savior and my blank check and my yes is on the table, I said, you fill out the check. And I'm like, now let me get that check right back, Lord. Let me get that check right back. Let me deposit half of this back and give you a little half back. Right? I want to play with house money. That's a little something y'all know about in Vegas. I want to play with house money, Lord, with my call in my life. But God doesn't work like that. He called us away. He confirmed it. I had to ask myself, do I love my comfort or do I love Christ more? In that moment, as a pastor, as a believer who had been walking with Jesus for over 15 years of my life, I had to say I love my comfort more than I love Christ. And I praise God I was able to make that confession. I put my yes on the table and I have to leave it there. I can't take it off once I say, okay, Lord, you used me one time. Now I can do whatever I want with my life. Sometimes that's where we fall into this reality of personal peace and influence. Like, man, I want that short-term mission trip, Lord. All right, I'm good until I see you, right? All right, bet. Now I'm going to go do me. <laughs> God said, nah, bro, you put that check back right here. You put that yes right back here. Take it out your back pocket. Put it back up here. Yeah. I will assign you where I want you and where I've called you. I'll open the door. I'll give you clarity and wisdom and confirmation. You got to keep that yes and that check on the table. God never called you to go without first committing himself to remain with you. So the call of God comes with his commitment. In Genesis 13, verses 14 through 17, we won't read it. But here's what happened. God separated Lot from Abram. Lot followed Abram. Lot didn't receive the call. Abram did. But Lot was like, bro, I'm going to ride with you on this one. So he rode with him. And he received some blessings for it. Wasn't nothing wrong with it. But then God was like, I need to separate you. Because, see, with Lot chilling in a cut with you, you still culturally have an heir. So you can say, all right, God, you haven't given me the fulfillment of the promise, but I got my nephew, so we're going to keep it within the family, so I'm going to transfer everything to him, and through him, that's how all the nations going to be blessed. God was like, no, 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 no. You can't tack on anything to your resume. You threw that thing in the trash. I need you to separate from Lot. I need you to go out on your own, and he did. It's amazing to me how sometimes on our call, God will put people in our lives to ride with us. And sometimes other people won't understand. They'll be like, oh, you're following your idol. Yo, if God has called them... I've learned to keep that legalistic talk out of my mouth. I've even tried to untalk people out of that. Like, man, nah, y'all don't want to come with us, man. Like, man, I don't know what we're going to go. I don't know what we're going to do. Hey, I know, man, but the Lord just put this burden. I'm like, ah, you better pray more. You better fast more. You better think through that a little bit more. Because here was my reason. I ain't going to find you a job. I ain't going to find you a house. I don't want that on me. So when y'all ride out to L.A. with us and six months later, you're talking about, see, man, you told me. I didn't tell you nothing, man. Like, that's all Jesus, bro. You was all in love with Jesus six months ago. Now you're trying to ride on me. 
that ain't me, man. I didn't want that pressure. I really didn't because I'm like, man, but then again, that's me looking at my personal peace. Is it really that hard to seek to help find people employment? Damien, is it really that hard to try to connect people to say, yo, what if y'all, two single brothers, what if y'all just got a spot together and split the rent in half? Like, working and networking, things like that. Like, I'm like, yo, man, that's the gospel in action. If you're really my family in Christ, then I need to treat you like family and do all that I can, challenge you to do all you can do and let God do what we can't do. And then we sit back and watch him once again get the praise, honor, and glory. So now that Abram was alone with no family, nephew gone, God reaffirms Genesis 12, 2, and 3 by expanding it. And he tells him this, Abram's rightful heir would be his own biological son. God would give the land that he was standing on to all of his descendants permanently, and Abram's children would be innumerable. God often reveals the description of the promise, but not the details, and that's what gets us in trouble. He gives us a description, but he don't give us all the details. And now we think we got to help him by filling in the gaps. But that's where he's like, I need you to trust in my word. I gave you a description, but not all the details. Trust in what I've given to you. Abram is trusting God, obeying his, God's call, commands and believes that, man, God is going to commit himself to me. I commit myself to God. What can go wrong? Like, all is well. Abraham done gave everything, separated himself. He's like, Lord, all I got is you, man. Like, it's, it's just me, you, Lord, and, and my wife. What are we going to do? Everything sounds great. Everything sounds perfect. Nothing could go wrong. Wrong. Abraham is a man. He's fallible and he's sinful. But this sets up the second aspect, God's compassion to Abraham. You see, God's compassion is not stifled by our failures. Some of us need to hear that one more again. God's compassion to us is not stifled by our failures, which means God doesn't withhold his compassion because we keep jacking up. That's what I love about being in Christ. Now, here's some things, some cultural pressures I want you to understand. First and foremost, Abram is childless. He has no heir to carry on his family name. So if he dies, that's it. It's a wrap. And God's promise doesn't get fulfilled. But then you got Sarah. At this time, it was Sarai. See, the more children a woman had, the more successful she was deemed to be. You have no children, that means you're a failure. It's like those memes of that Twitter account that says you only had one job. You know, like they'll have the coffee mug, but it has the handle on the inside of the coffee mug. And it'll say, you just had one job. Like, this is the only thing you were called off the bench to do. Come in, foul that dude, get the foul, and go back and sit down. Like, you done jacked up. Nobody told you to take a shot. Nobody told you to try to dunk it. Like, dude, what are you doing? You had one job. So culture looked at women like, you ain't got no kids? Oh, my. You, man, go on. Get, get away from me. You had one job. Give the dude a son. Like, that's right. No, seriously. Like, that's the tension. But let's look at it from our vantage point today. I talked to my wife and got some deep consultation in regards to the tension of women. And I went to my 12-year-old daughter and got some deep consultation about the tension of women. Now, I've pastored women. I got a mama, right? I ain't got no sisters, but I got sisters in the Lord. So I had conversations with ladies. But the reality of what I saw was that men and women's lists are a little bit different. So for men, oversimplified, if we make money, win at everything, and fix stuff, we a good dude. Bro, just make money, all right? Just make money, homie. Like, win at everything you do, dog. And every now and then, throw some peanut butter and duct tape on something, fix it, you good. You a good man. But for women, Lord have mercy. All right, for women, your worth 
is based on how you look physically, your marital status, your education, your career path, the amount of children you got, the length of your hair, the branding of your clothes, accessorizing. Do your hues go together with the seasons? Like all kinds of crazy stuff. All these complexities. Like, like I needed my wife to set me down and like, baby, why? Every Sunday, they don't, they don't start church late. It's, the, it's in the bulletin, which means it's like the Ten Commandments written in stone, girl. Church starts at this time. Why are we showing up 35 minutes late every single Sunday? It ain't like it's a shock. Oh, snap, they started at 1030. Girl, it's always 1030. Why are we rolling up at 1110, sitting in the back like, hey, hey, sorry, we missed worship again. Like, why? Seriously, she had to sit me down and say, baby, I love you, but let me walk you through some things. Yes, I pick out my outfit the night before, but when I wake up, things change. I'm like, I understand that, <laughs> but things shouldn't change four or five times, girl. Like, what's going on? And I'm the pastor. No, I'm just kidding. So it's like, yo, we got to start taking two cars. That's how we solve that problem. But here's the reality of that tension. We can't ignore this tension. Here's what they're feeling. God, you promised me, but you're taking too long. So, Lord, I'm just going to help you out. The culture says a woman who couldn't produce a child had to provide a concubine. So basically it's like, look, Abram, let's be real. I'm getting up there. Admit it. I'm getting up there. But don't admit it, all right? <laughs> we ain't getting any younger. I ain't giving you a child. I want you to take my concubine, Hagar. And you're going to have your child through her, but I'll raise him as if he was my own because culturally the culture said he's my child. Abram failed. He listened to Sarah's suggestion. He slept with Hagar. He had an opportunity to look his wife in the face and say, baby, listen. We need to believe in the promise of God. I'm not going to step out on you even with your permission. No. The reality of me staying faithful to the promise of God is me staying faithful to you sexually, emotionally, physically, and everything in between. So I hear your strategy, but it doesn't align with the word of God. So we're going to have to fall back on that, and we're going to keep trusting God and keep trying. But he didn't do that. But the failure of Abraham does not forfeit God's grace. Abram's choice for choosing another woman to bear a child is not in harmony with God's plan. In Genesis 2.24, says a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his one wife. It doesn't say his wife and a side chick. It doesn't say an open marriage. There's been controversy with news clips talking about open marriages and pastors' perspectives on it. And if it doesn't align with what God says in Matthew 19, 4 and 5, that marriage is one man, one woman, that's the way that God has instituted it. Culture ain't redefining it. God is the one that defined it. And so that's where we have to understand that vantage point. But here's the tension. Some couples wrestle with infertility, and they choose to adopt. We shouldn't treat them who have children, those without, as if they're second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And as much as we shouldn't treat single parents with children from multiple different other people as second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, these are cultural tensions that we have to learn to appropriate the gospel and speak to that, to say, I affirm you and I love you as my brother and sister in the faith, and you're not seen as less than because of things that took place before you knew Christ or even after you knew Christ, because every single one of us is susceptible to sin every single day. But it's that reality of, you know what, if we as Christians are really pro-life, pro-life should not just be defined as anti-abortion. What about all the kids that we fight for to stay alive with a live birth and then we let them go into an oppressive social system? 
that disconnects them from a loving family where they can be molested, taken advantage of, pimped out and discipled and trafficked possibly? As Christians, we should not just say, yes, I'm pro-life because that only means don't kill the baby, but what about the ones that come out of the womb and they are looking for a family? Maybe God is calling some of us to step up and foster and adopt. I can't think of a more beautiful illustration of the gospel than stepping up to foster and adopt. Now, we have three kids, but there's this tension. And when I would hear people preach this, it would make me upset. I'm just being honest with you because I felt like they were being holier than thou. But I was like, you know what? In the zip code we're planting in North Long Beach and Compton, I just got told by the Long Beach Police Department that this is the highest zip code in Long Beach with the cause for child abuse and neglect. And then this is what the officer said. We need leadership on this. Your request to partner with the police department couldn't come at a better time. I told that to my wife because her and I had just been walking through the tension of fostering to adopt. Now hear me when I say this. And maybe it's because I was born in the hood and raised in the hood and I saw friends that went through the system. I'm not against adopting kids from other nations. and stuff. I'm not against that. But I hear that to be the dominance of the conversation. What about the kids from the hood, man? What about the kids in the suburbs? What about the kids in our own foster care system? I saw a stat that said if churches in America would get together, we would completely, if we adopt and foster, wipe out the entire system. We could alleviate that social problem if we, the church, would at least have one to two, possibly three couples from every church in America step up and say, how do we work through this process? So I'm even wrestling through that tension of this call, this burden, this desire to step into a child's life in Long Beach and Compton and say, man, even if it's for two weeks or if it's for two years or for the rest of our lives, what will it look like to shepherd you and love you? I ain't saying that just to be like, oh, man, that dude, man, yeah, nah. This is a tension I'm wrestling with because logistically the space doesn't work out, right? Like that financially that's a bur- Like trust me, man, like I get that tension, but that's where I'm like, yo, Lord, okay, if this is something, then you're going to have to put this in my wife and my heart. We're going to pray, and we're going to see how we can take next step to see this become a reality. Bringing another child into the home that doesn't come from a structure like my kids, what if they expose my kids to other things? Exactly. That's the tension. That's the reality of discipleship, man. Like, that's the tension that we all have to wrestle with. And I think sometimes the reason it's harder to get people to consider living in our homes is because after we have coffee, after somebody admits an affair, after we're working through the tensions of the discipleship rhythm, then we break and we go our separate ways to our separate homes. But when it comes to bringing someone into your home, there is no break. It's like this is a reality I've got to live out on a consistent basis. And you would think that wouldn't be a problem if you're already living it out on a consistent basis. Those are just tensions. So the core of Abram and Sarah's disobedience was that of Adam and Eve. They failed to keep believing in God's word. The consequences for our sin choices, they're not guaranteed to go away after God forgives them. Some of us still have scars. I mean, there's STDs that won't leave our bodies because of mistakes we've made. It doesn't mean that we're less saved. That's just the reality of the fallen world that we live in. Some of us had relationships and there's still drama. Even though we haven't been in that relationship for 20 years and we've been walking with Jesus for 20 years, there's still that drama and that tension because this is a fallen world, y'all. But praise God, this is not our last stop. But that tension is, will remain with us until we see Jesus face to face. Some of us bear the scars of our sin emotionally, mentally, and physically, but the good news is God's compassion helps us see his faithfulness. God's compassion helps us see his faithfulness. 
God had compassion on Hagar and Ishmael, who was the child of that unholy union, if you will. God did not want that. But even though Abraham still did it, God still took care of Hagar and Ishmael. God covenanted with Abram, and it made it unilateral, which he said, bro, you're going to jack up a million more times. But I'm making a unilateral covenant, which means it's on me. It ain't on you. It's on me. You're going to fail. I won't fail. So the promise is dependent on God. It's not dependent on anyone else. So God changed Abram to Abraham, which means a father of a multitude. Sarai to Sarah, which means royalty from which kings would come. And you would think everything was all good. Abraham got his act together. Nah, man. They rode into a land in Gerar, and the king saw Sarah. And Abraham was like, hey, look, babe, I love you with my whole heart. But you fly, girl. And they're going to see you. And I know you 90 and some change right now, but they're going to see you. And they're going, who that, who that girl right there, right? Like, who that right there? And I want you to tell them I'm your brother. Because if you tell them I'm your brother, they're going to let me chill in the palace. They ain't going to kill me. And then we're just going to kind of figure out how things go from there. So this brother, they lied. They lied. And it wasn't the first time. They did it twice. And God had to intervene like this dude, Abraham. Yo, king, that's his wife. Don't smash her. Like, yo, listen, man, I need you to do this. King's like, man, y'all tripping. What y'all got me up in here with this love triangle? And Man, you better be lucky nobody put a hand on your wife. Man, I'm just saying, I didn't want you to kill me. Yo, get out my land. Take some money. Take some lambs. Whatever you want, bro, just get out. I, I, I don't want you here anymore. I don't want this curse from God on my land. So God intervened supernaturally. So 25 years after making the promise, we saw in Genesis 12, God blessed Abraham and Sarah with their precious son Isaac. The promise of the promiser was now realized. Now, we would assume if this was Hollywood, credits roll. Man, beautiful movie. I'm going to get that joint on Netflix when it come out. Like, no. Last point. This is real life. God's command to Abraham. God commands us to continually obey him by offering sacrifices. Let me tell you what happened in his life. Fast forward to Genesis 22, 1, 1 and 2, it says this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains, which I will tell you. Now, God is not telling Abraham to murder his son, but to bring him as an offering. Now, we have to look at this horizontally and vertically, because if we look at either or, it's going to be out of whack. So there's a vertical and a horizontal reality. Horizontal, sinful humanity must offer sacrifices to deal with the sin debt that God holds us accountable for, that we've racked up. The vertical is God mandates sinful humans to offer sacrifices from the firstborn. This is what God requires. So before the law in Genesis chapter 4, Abel offered the firstborn from his flock. Cain fell back and gave some Fruits, not the first fruits of what he had done. And God saw Abel's as acceptable. Cain's was not because he did not follow protocol of giving me your first, which represents your best. Then we know what happened there. When the law was instituted in Exodus 13, 2, God tells them, set apart the firstborn male of the flock. So if we just look at it horizontally, as the philosopher Kierkegaard did, we'll see this as an act of crime and child endangerment. We won't see it as an offering. When we look at a vertical, then we won't offer God what he requires, our best. We're going to shortchange him. So what about us? Is God calling me to give up my firstborn on an altar? No. No. This is a unique call that God gave to Abraham in this narrative. Don't try to misappropriate this. 
Don't try to say, well, my first, it's my job. I'm cashing in all my chips today. That's it. And hold on, fall back before you make that call. Listen. God tells Abraham in verse 12, don't lay a hand on the boy. And in 13 of 22, he provides a ram to be offered in the place of Isaac. After this sacrifice was offered, Abraham and Isaac and all Israel continuously needed to make sacrifices for their sinfulness. But ladies and gentlemen, where it affects us is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom literally means to buy a slave out of slavery. And the word for literally means instead of or in place of. So hear me when I say this. Jesus didn't come to die for us. He came to die instead of us. So Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. So all of God's wrath for our sin, the debt that we could never pay off, Jesus said, I will step in to absorb all of your wrath, God. I will give my perfect life in their place. In a matter of hours on a cross, I will absorb an eternal debt that finite sinners can never pay off in totality. I will take the cup of wrath down to the last drop. And when I am done, I will declare it is finished in victory. I will be buried and I will rise three days later, showing that the sacrifice I made was approved by you. And now everyone that puts their trust in Jesus will have that sin debt completely erased and my perfect life accredited, deposited into their account. So when you look at them, you don't see their sinful mistakes. You don't see their lack of trust. You see my perfect life, Jesus Christ, that clothes them and covers them. That's the beauty of the gospel. So what about us? Is God calling me to give up my firstborn? No, Jesus Christ already accepted the position of being the acceptable sacrifice. So then what? Well, for the non-believer who doesn't know Jesus, God is calling you to give up your life. He's calling you to give up control over your decision-making process, over your past. Give up control over your past, your present, and your future by surrendering your sin debt at the foot of the cross of Jesus this morning. But for the believer... God commands us continually to obey him by walking in the spirit. And as our Hope Church pastors and worship team come up to the front, I want to remind you, Romans 6, Christian, tells us that we are dead to sin. Romans chapter 8 says the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to say no to sinfulness. And Romans chapter 1 says we must present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual act of worship. This is in the present tense, which means I don't just present God one time, one day, one Sunday. No, every breath I breathe should be a reality of me sacrificing my will, my desire, my sovereignty, and putting it into the hands of God. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Christ says, go and make disciples of all ethnicities. That's a command. God is calling you, Christian, to put your yes on the table. For me and my family, it's a move to Los Angeles to plant Reach Fellowship. But we're doing so by not divorcing ourselves from the mission. When you plant a church, you just don't set up shop and say, here we are. Come on, come on. They're going to be like, no, because there's 50 other churches on this block. So how do we not divorce ourselves from the mission? praying for our waiters and restaurants, getting to know our neighbors, getting out of our comfort zone, playing catch with the kids, not in the back, but in the front where everybody in our neighborhood does life, asking people, how can I pray for you? Inviting people into our home, diversifying our dinner table, not just ethnically, but spiritually, where non-believers are in the crib listening to how we engage our children as we're sharing the story of our life with them. 
And people ask me, why'd you move here instead of moving to Orange County? Man, we want to plant a church in that neighborhood. You know how bad that neighborhood is? Yes, and that's why God wants us there. What, is it? what do you mean plant a church? Oh, fresh. See, man, we got this message called the gospel, right? Then you walk them through it. And what I love about L.A., and you know how it is in Vegas the same way out west, people are like, what, what is church? What is Christ? What are you talking about? Everybody I've asked in L.A., how can I pray for you? They've all given me the same answer. Just pray for good health. I'm like, so y'all got like this group text that I ain't on? Because like every single one of y'all, from the cable dude to the waiter at El Torito, like every single one of y'all like, yeah, bro, just give me, give me, give me, give me, give me good health on mine. That's all I need, dog. I'm like, good health? So one dude, I just asked, like, man, you know, Jesus, if you were to die right now, man, do you know where you would stand before God? I just went straight for the jugular. I wanted to see how somebody out west would, like, and he just looked down at the ground. I'm like, yo, dog, we was born in sin. I walked him through the gospel, and he just looked up at me and was like, man, just pray I got good health, bro. I'm like, that's all you got? But here's what I realized. See, a lot of people say, and I think this is for the South, America's post-Christian. Out west now, we pre-Christian. People don't know who Abraham is, like Abraham, Ibrahim, from South Central? I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm serious. You know in Vegas, there's some, you live in a city saturated with lostness. So there's no excuse to say, man, I'm called, but I can't live on mission. And don't confine mission to a week away from your comfort zone. It's every day. It's your neighborhood. Wherever people are not worshiping God, that's the mission field. For some of us, it's our homes, it's our neighborhoods, it's our place of work, it's our coffee shop, it's the grocery store. Never, 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 never divorce yourself from that reality. Let me pray, and we will now respond as God leads. Father, I pray that you would allow the Word of God to massage the hearts of those that are in this place. If there are those that don't know Jesus, through the proclamation of the gospel, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would allow them to recognize they can bring all of their sinfulness to you and not only have it removed, but have the righteousness of Jesus cover them today by putting their trust in Christ. And for us as believers that are living in the tension that we know that we're called, but we have comfort, personal peace, and affluence, I pray that you would speak to us, me included, and that you would allow us to think through next steps to put our yes on the table and leave it there. It'd be one thing if I was like, yo, I already moved to L.A., let me take that yes back. And now you're talking foster care and adoption? Come on, Lord, when does it stop? It ain't going to stop till I see you face to face. You have a plan and a strategy, and I am called to obey that plan.